Genesis chapter 1. One of the blessings of maturity is also a burden, which is understanding all the things that can hurt. A number of years ago, I uh, discovered that table saws can be painful uh, by sticking my thumb on one while it was still in motion. And so this last week, uh, I've been working on a project at home, and uh, I have a very healthy respect for the table saw, (laughs) including, uh, for the first time, I used a feather board. Those of you that know what that is, it's a little gizmo that you lock down onto the, and when you put your board through, it holds it right in place, and I thought, where has this been all my life, you know? what What a wonderful tool, but I never thought of the table saw really as that dangerous, just shows my own foolishness as a young man, but I never really thought of it as dangerous till I stuck my thumb on the moving blade. And, you know, as a young pastor, I didn't think of preaching the Bible as being dangerous. Yeah, I read those stories in the Bible about some of those things, but I really didn't think about it being dangerous. But over the years, I've learned that there are some topics that are more joyfully received than others. <laughs> and in recent days in our country, we've learned... That when you preach the word, some people can get real upset, and they can push back real hard. And not being one to try to learn those lessons too quickly, I want to try my own hand at preaching a dangerous topic today, Uh, and that is on the topic of homosexuality. Um, As I said a week ago, I've been, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, we had baptism last week, but I want to preach a a few sermons on some topics that I hope will, will encourage the forming of your thinking not only about the topic but about how we learn truth and how we arrive at truth and how we apply that truth especially in the area of our government and uh, being good citizens as Christians and so I want to talk about homosexuality today and I want to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and I want to begin by asking the question, what does God's word say about sexuality, period? Not homosexuality, but about sexuality. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if you haven't ever considered the book of Genesis in detail or in depth, chapter 1 is the summary of God's work of creation. Chapter 2 gives details and expands some of what chapter 1 talks about. And as such, we want to look at verse 18 of chapter 2 as some of the detail about God's creation of male and female. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper comparable to him. Apparently, God created Adam and not Eve at the same time. I will make a helper. In the King James, it says a helper that is meet 
for him, comparable or compatible, the idea, uh, and you'll see the idea played out here. Verse 19, so out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the bird of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. God did this on purpose as a teaching uh, opportunity for, for Adam. Adam saw the animals, and he was wise enough to see male and female. And he, he, he began to realize, I don't have anybody comparable to me, compatible I don't have another human being here. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, you understand that Adam didn't keep a journal. Right? We don't have this because Adam was writing it down. Oh, dear journal, the most amazing thing happened today. Okay. And so what we have in the book of Genesis is a a combination of perspectives. We have God's perspective when God says, let us make man in our image, let us make them male and female. That's God directly speaking. And then we have sort sort of an unnamed narrator who says, then this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then we have Adam himself going, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then we have that narrator again saying, therefore, a man and a woman shall be married. You see, it it is the divine perspective, including all of these perspectives, most likely written by Moses many years later. And so where did Moses learn all these things? Not from Adam's journal, but from God's divine revelation to him. And so we not only have a record of events, we have a divine interpretation of those events. And so we understand that God blesses the sexual expression of one man with one woman in a marital relationship. That's what happened here. And and it boggles the mind that God would call Adam and Eve married. Well, of course they're married. Who else are they going to marry? I wouldn't marry you if you were the last person. Well, maybe I would, actually. Now, they obviously had a wonderful relationship. Someone has calculated for about two weeks. That's kind of like marriage today, isn't it, actually? (laughs) That honeymoon phase? No. God blesses the sexual expression. Now, there there are two ways to define what is right and wrong from the Scripture. One is positively, one is negatively. What I mean by that is, God just told us everything that's right and everything that's wrong in one verse. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were naked and were not ashamed. In other words, this is totally appropriate. 
God just defined what is right and what is wrong right there. Now, I understand you can look there and say, well, God didn't talk about this, and God didn't talk about that, and God didn't talk about the other. That's true. But the question we should ask is, does this seemingly clear instruction form the basis of the pattern we see throughout the Bible? And the answer is yes. God says that the sexual expression of one man with one woman in marriage is a wonderful thing. If you look at the end of verse, chapter 1, verse 31, then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. That included the man and the woman, the marriage and the sexual expression. God defines what is right. Now, um, we say, well, we don't live under the Old Testament. Uh, Yes, uh, you're correct. The New Testament is our binding authority. The Old Testament is our example of how God works and teaches us about God. And that's why it's important to go right here and say God's plan for sexual expression was restated. And I don't mean it was changed. I mean it was, it was spoken again by Christ uh, in Matthew 19. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, This is sounding an awful lot like he's just quoting Genesis. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ah, Maybe he is quoting Genesis. Um, He said, Haven't you heard this? Now, this this was an answer to a question about divorce and some other things. And he just said, Haven't you heard this? This is this is the truth. And he did nothing to change that truth whatsoever. There are people who will say, and, and this, is, uh, this is an argument that I encountered this week in my study that I, I haven't encountered in real life, but I can see certainly how people will do it. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Therefore, it must be okay. I would say he didn't need to say what was wrong because he said what was right. You know, God gives us lists of sins. He gives us lists of righteousnesses, acts of righteousness, but he also gives us principles that are very broad. And one of those broad principles is this. God's plan for sexual expression is one man and one woman in a married relationship. And of course, if you say, well, you know, Jesus was here in that period of time that's kind of between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay, that's fine, let's go to the epistles. God's plan for sexual expression was restated by the apostles. Marriage is honorable. That's an important, you know, we, in, in the discussion of, of homosexuality and all that goes with it, we've almost stopped talking about the importance of marriage between two heterosexual people. And somehow it almost feels like the whole idea of people living together and not being married is sort of like, well, you know, it's not as bad as this other thing, so we just kind of forget about that. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. I've, I've done some study on the use of the word sex in the, new, in the Bible, trying to understand it, especially as, as I would teach it to people who are dating and getting married, And do you know what? God almost never uses the word sex 
as a verb, it's always talking about men and women, and whenever he talks about sexual activity, what we call having sex, it's always an expression like this, the bed, or to know someone, or to lie with someone, all of those kinds of expressions. And so God clearly is talking about the sexual relationship in marriage. Marriage is honorable, and the bed is undefiled. In other words, a sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is approved of by God. We can't lose sight of that with all of the other things that are going on. Now, clearly, this word here, in the Greek language, this word, the word that's translated but, is a big contrast word. This, but, that. It's, it's a big either-or kind of sentence. And so marriage is honorable, and marital sex between a man and a woman is undefiled, but, if you want Lunsford's paraphrase, it's this, everything else is a sin. The word fornication is the broadest word in the New Testament for anything that God doesn't approve of. Anything. And this makes it even more specific. In other words, if you're an unmarried person, you fall into this category with sexual sin. If you're a married person, you fall into that category with sexual sin. So God, in these two categories, he says, marital sexual expression is good, but everything else is wrong. And again... We should refer back to Genesis and to Jesus for our definition of marriage. The fact that homosexuals can be married in our state does not make their condition of life any better than if they were unmarried. And and let me just stop today. Let me just go aside just for a minute and say this. If you're here today and you're struggling with sexual temptation in the area of homosexuality, I hope you will listen all the way till the end of my sermon because I want to say the title of my sermon is, sermon is Loving Samaria. I hope you'll understand today that just as I would lovingly say to you without Christ you will go to hell, I would also say that without the Christ expression of sexuality you will not enjoy your life and you may end up going to hell if that is the sin that keeps you from believing in Christ my desire for you if you're struggling with those temptations or for your friends who are struggling with those temptations is that they know the joy and peace of God and in order for us to experience that we have to know what God's truth says God's plan for sexual expression was restated by Jesus it was restated by the apostles and there's another interesting principle here Everything outside the marriage invites God's condemnation. Did you see that? God will judge. When you choose sexual expression outside of God's plan, you invite God's condemnation. Now that condemnation is long-term and short-term. The long-term is like any sin. Please hear that. This is one sin among many. There is a uniqueness, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is one sin among many. But if this is the sin that you are so attached to that you cannot believe in Christ, then yes, that sin will take you to hell. You will suffer the ultimate of God's condemnation. Now, I have a good friend who lived as a homosexual for 10 years, 
and before God delivered him, he had come to faith in Christ, but had struggles in his life, and they resulted in him coming to a point and, and, and uh, falling into certain things and then living in that lifestyle for 10 years and then being liberated from it. Do I believe a Christian can have homosexual expression in his life? I believe it does happen. But it's never to be accepted or excused or explained away. It's to be repented of as any other sin. Okay. Somehow we tend to look at certain sins like murder or homosexuality, or rape, and say, well, there's no way that person can be a Christian. Well, if that is the tone of their life, yes, and that's a whole other discussion on the doctrine of salvation. I think you know me well enough to know that I'm not trying to make an accommodation for sin. But what I do want to make an accommodation for is the fact that you might be struggling. And God says, I do want to deliver you, but what you need to know is... With any sin, including this one, when you choose sin, you come under the condemnation of God. You come under the discipline of God if you're a believer. When you choose righteousness, you choose eternal life. Galatians chapter 6, be not deceived. Whatever a man reaps, whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap destruction. If he sows to the spirit, he will reap eternal life. So it very, it's very much true that we've got to make a choice for righteousness. That's why God's plan for sexual expression makes sexual sin unique. Um, turn with me to uh, second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be getting to this chapter. Lord willing, uh, my plan is to come back to 1 Corinthians next month. But uh, I do want to go ahead here to this passage which is so important to our sexual purity, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and that's why I'm having you turn to it so that you might even uh, you know, underline it or highlight it or put a star by it or at least write it in your notes and really take note of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Bible says the Holy Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. You are part of Christ. As a believer. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but, note this, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. There is something unique about sexual sin, and I would not, um, I would not claim to be able to explain that exactly to you, except that it has to do with, with uh, your sexuality, with your body, and with the nature of the sexual relationship. The man and the woman were joined to one another. There is a sense in which the husband and wife becomes one flesh. God designed the sexual relationship so that when a man and a woman come together physically, there is a picture of the fact that spiritually they are like this. They aren't like this, and they aren't like egg beaters. You know, two egg beaters are in the same bowl, but they're just going around in their own circle. 
No, Christian marriage is like this. And the, sexual, the physical sexual expression demonstrates that. And so God says, when you get saved, you're joined to Christ. And when you get married, you're joined to this other person. Therefore, to take that sexual expression and, and, and with your body and do something else, it's like you're, you're moving away from this oneness. You're moving away from your oneness with God. And, and earlier, he says, he who is joined to a a promiscuous woman or a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. That doesn't mean that he's married to her, but it means he's, he's sort of simulated this one flesh relationship. He has taken this holy thing and made it unholy. Therefore, God says, you need to understand this is a sin against your body. This is a significant and a unique kind of sin. And so with that basis of what God says about sexuality, then the next question is, what does God say about homosexual behavior? Um, We could start back with Sodom, and God condemned the behavior of Sodom. We could read about it in Genesis 19, or we could fast forward to the end of the Bible in the book of Jude and read about it in Jude, where it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, clearly, let's just put it this way, whatever they did in Sodom and Gomorrah was wrong. That's what immoral means. It means wrong. Immorality can be applied to anything. Stealing is immoral. Lying is immoral. Sexuality can be either immoral or moral. And so whatever they were doing was wrong, and whatever they were doing was connected to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They were going after the wrong flesh. Okay. Now, I, I know that's just a starting point. And again, we could have gone back, and and if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, you know that it was men in the city wanting to have sex with the men who were visiting with Lot. And God got in the middle of that and stopped that in a very significant way. So, but we just start here and say God condemned. And the reason I started with Sodom is because it's early in the Bible record. It's early in the timeline of the Old Testament. As we go forward, we come to the law in the Old Testament. And we read this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. God, this word abomination is reserved for things like homosexuality and witchcraft and other such things. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. I don't believe we should put anybody to death today for sexual sin. Understand that. What we learned from the Old Testament was that there are certain sins that are so serious to God that he said the only way to keep my people pure is to put them to death. The point we need to get is that's how serious God is about this. And some Christians want to take the perspective of going, oh, well, you know, to each his own. Judge not that you be not judged. That is not a godly perspective. It is not a godly perspective. God also condemns homosexuality in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 
um, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's all sexual sin. In a list like this, it refers to normal sex, but, but in a sinful way. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, married people having wrong sexual relations, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And these two words could be translated a couple of different ways. It, one of them could be referring to male prostitutes. That doesn't make it any better than saying sodomites, but we understand that there's a couple different ways. Now, again, is this list of sins going to keep you out of heaven? Clearly not. Nor thieves, nor covetous drunkards, there's more to the list. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God, but here's the good news. The Corinthian church, there were people who were like all of these in this list, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what God says is, if you live in sin, and if you die in sin, you will go to hell. But if you live in sin, as every human being does, and then come to faith in Christ, then no, you will not go to hell. You will go to heaven. God will change your life. God condemns. But the thing that we need to understand here is, this is in a list of sins, Nobody would would look at fornication, adultery, stealing, coveting, drunkardness, reviling, which is saying, you know, slander, extortion. Nobody would look at those things and say, well, God really doesn't mean that. Right? Nobody's going to say, well, God really thinks adultery is okay. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, let me just explain to you. If you take this word and turn it upside down, it means the opposite. And again, we would go back to one man, one woman. We would go to the law, which speaks about adultery. We would come forward to Jesus, to the woman caught in adultery, and he said, go and sin no more. See what I'm saying? This is just listed in a list of sins. And so God does condemn homosexuality in the New Testament. And notice I didn't even look at Romans chapter 1. I'm trying to go to some passages that you might not normally think of. So yes, it is a sin, but yes, it is forgivable. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the worst sin. And you should not think that. I had a friend... He was a good man back in the day, and he's a good man today. Uh, I, I won't identify him too much, but he, we've been acquainted for many, many years. And he was in a rest stop on the freeway. He was a traveling computer guy for a while. And a fellow stands up to the stall next to him and looks over and says, you have a nice body. And my friend says, if you touch me, I'll kill you. That's the way a lot of Christians think about homosexuality. And I'm not saying it's okay for him to touch him. Don't get me wrong. We got we to gotta, we gotta check that attitude. This is a sin among sins. It has become a huge thing in our society. And we've got to deal with it. But we've got to be careful to understand that it is one sin among sins. But I need to ask the question today, how do people argue with God's clear truth? I've already alluded to some of that, but let me just give you several ways. First of all is the appeal to science. And, and I'm going to make a very important statement that I want you to hear clearly, 
And did I put it up here? No, I'm going to come back to that. Here's the statement. No one, and I'm going to go way out on a limb because I think I have the proof to back it up. No one in the scientific, educational, or medical communities talks about a proven biological cause of homosexual behavior. No one in the scientific, educational, or medical communities. And what I mean by that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use another word you may be unfamiliar with, but I'm going to use the word the academy. The academy is a word that really smart people in high places in education use to refer to other really smart people. If you're a, if you're a, a college professor, if you're a seminary professor, you're in the academy of that institution. In other words, this, these are the people who really know what's going on. And I'm telling you that nobody in the scientific, educational, or medical academy talks about a proven biological cause of homosexual behavior. And you're going to go, how can that be? I'll tell you how. I'm going to come to that. But let me just talk about some famous unbelievers who say, no, there is not a biological cause. And now, there are several points to be considered here. Some people talk about genetics, and some people talk about biology. There is a little difference. Um, Certain things can be introduced to your biology after your genetic makeup. You know, genetics, biology, and then, of course, we talk about environment and such. Now, you may have heard of these two folks, Masters and Johnson, who wrote the famous book, Human Sexuality, and are part of, really, the sexual revolution in our country. I mean, these people go back a number of years. I believe they're both dead now. But in their book, Human Sexuality, note this quote. And if you want these quotes later, I'll photocopy them or email them to you, whatever you need. The genetic theory of homosexuality has been generally discarded today. You would do well to memorize the names Masters and Johnson and that statement. Did you know that Masters and Johnson said the genetic theory has been discarded? You know what people will say back to you when you say that? They'll go, because nobody you're going to talk to has any facts in part because there aren't any facts. Despite the interest in possible hormone mechanisms in the origin of homosexuality, (coughs) this is Masters and Johnson. These are unbelievers. No serious scientist today suggests that a simple cause and effect relationship applies. How in the world did they slip this one by us? The Sex Information and Education Council of the U.S., and I I apologize to you for preaching from secular materials, but I think you can understand when it comes to defending the truth, you need to know a little bit about what the enemy is saying. The Sexual Information and Education Council, and by the way, I'll give you a website. If you want to go online and see these online, I'll give it to you. In their book, Sexuality and Man, man does not from birth possess an instinctive desire to achieve, now this is their bias, they're saying he doesn't have a desire to achieve any specific goal in regard to sex. They're saying people come out of the womb, it's not male, female, homosexual, whatever, it's just nothing, it's just a blank screen. But watch the rest of this. But but that his sexual behavior is at any time the cumulative result of the learning and conditioning experience he had. 
this, these people don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> but they're telling us that homosexuals are the result of learning and conditioning experience. One more. A guy named Lawrence Hatterer in his book, Changing Homosexuality. This guy is an unbeliever who works in reparative therapy, which means helping people change out of homosexuality into heterosexuality, okay, which has been condemned by the American Psychological Association in recent years and so on. And yet that's, that's his field, but he's an unbeliever. Homosexuals are made, not born. <laughs> when I read this stuff this week, I mean, I, I've known this, but when I read these quotes, I just went, what? How can this be so clear? Now, I'm going to give you two sentences and this will be the only time I'll tell you to memorize something other than a Bible verse. This is my own creation as a way to defend God's word and get people to see the light. Here's a sentence that you could use if people get, you get in a debate. Don't start your debates with this. But if you get in a debate and somebody's talking about homosexuality, this would be my advice for you to say. There is no scientific proof of any genetic or biological cause of homosexual identity. If you know of some, please show me so I can correct my erroneous thinking. Do you understand how that's, that's pretty bold, but it's also uh, intellectually open? Show me the proof. But instead of, instead of just saying, well, there isn't any, say it more clearly and then invite them to show you. And when they go, uh, 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 say, no, no, hey, I'm, I'm seriously asking. If you know of the proof, if you can show me the research, then bring it to me. Okay? And I'm telling you, there isn't any. Now, this is important First of all, this is important for you because you need to know God's word is true. You need to know that there is nothing in the world that contradicts God's truth. God's truth is true and somebody else's ideas are just their ideas. And so first of all, it's important for you. Second of all, it may be valuable to you as you try to, as you try to witness to others. Now, so, how do people argue with God's truth? Appeal to science. Number two, appeal to the majority opinion. Now, do you know what, you know what this means? It means everybody's, everybody knows, everybody, everybody knows that people are born this way. And so if you don't know it, you're a rube. You're a hick. You must be from Fern Tucky. Because all the people in Bellingham know the truth. And you're just an idiot. I saw a little article in the paper this week about people who have solar panels on their roof, you know, collecting the electricity, uh, sticking it to the man, you know, that whole thing. A little study done up in New England. You might assume that the people who install rooftop solar panels probably are fairly rich. It costs an average of 35000 before taxes to put to put, uh, put that on your roof, and you might assume they're politically liberal. According to a new study, though, politics and income may not be such important factors after all. 
examining the spread of solar residential installations in Connecticut, two researchers from Yale and the University of Connecticut found that the single most important factor driving whether a given house installed solar was peer influence. You know what we used to call that, especially when we were having youth ministry, we called it peer pressure. Well, my neighbor's getting the green stuff. I better get it too. I don't want to be an ignorant old rube not having green power. Everybody knows this is the best way to go. Maybe or may not be. I'm not an electrician or whatever. But you're going to buy it because the guy next door bought it? And that's what people have done with homosexuality. The people, you know, the, the important people, the famous people, hey, oh, 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 well, I, I, I'm just a guy in Ferndale. I don't dare contradict all of those people. And then, and then it, it gets more direct in an attack on the nature of the Bible. Um, and, and, and let me just summarize it this way. Here, and and again, make sure you understand the words on the screen right now are the words of the critic, not my words, not God's words. In other words, some people approach the Bible as a collection of stories that document the human author's beliefs and feelings about God at the time of its writing. And so they would say the Bible is inspired in the same way a lovely poem is said to be inspired. The words of the Bible don't matter to these people because the Bible is just a book like any other book. And so when you appeal to the Bible, they go, well, it's just a book. Some guys wrote that a couple thousand years ago. And that's why what's important is is not so much to argue about the Bible as to get them to hear the Bible because God makes that powerful. And then attack on the meaning of the Bible. Um... The second, this is much more dangerous because it comes from people who claim to agree that the Bible is the word of God and yet they want to get rid of certain parts. Let me just summarize this. These folks look at the events of Sodom and say the sin wasn't homosexual behavior but violence. They would say it would have been okay to have homosexual relations just not to attack people. They look at the Old Testament law and they say we're not under the law anymore. They look at the ministry of Jesus and say he didn't condemn homosexual sin. And they read Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and they find ways to make them say something other than the plain meaning. Now let me just appeal again to a person who is not a believer, who is a quote-unquote Christian, but he is a, a a noted expert in... Uh, not in the Bible like standing up and preaching it, but in the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that that goes with it. He is a pro-homosexual advocate. He has served on the faculties of Wake Forest, University of Virginia, Duke, Duke Divinity, University of Zimbabwe. He's the author of eight books, 35 scholarly articles, 17 edited volumes. His research and teaching have focused on various aspects of New Testament theology. He currently teaches at Duke Divinity School, And in his book, Homosexuality in the Bible, he said, the Bible's rule against homosexual practice is an absolute prohibition. And the scripture condemns homosexual behavior. It's a guy who who wants to support homosexuality, but he says the Bible is clear. 
And that's what I would say. Now, why do people fight God's truth so much? First of all, these are sinners fighting for the approval of their sin. You remember when Jesus was here, when Jesus had said certain things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the Pharisees were religious people who didn't like Jesus' message. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we going to do? For this man works many signs or miracles. If we leave him alone, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come away and take away our place in our nation from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Do you understand what happened here? Jesus spoke God's truth. He did God's works. And there were people who did not like his truth. And so they said, He's, he raised somebody from the dead. I can just hear the meeting. They're in, they're in a room and they're talking about it. They're going, ah, what are we going to do now? I know he did all these healings, but how, you know, this Lazarus guy is going to walk around and tell everybody he was dead. So they said, let's kill him. And Jesus said, the disciple is not going to be above his master. You're the disciple, Jesus was the master. If you stand for the truth of God, people are going to try to get you out of the way. They'll do it intellectually, they'll do it legally, they'll do it however they can. The homosexual community and all of the others who are not homosexual but who love them and desire a positive esteem for immoral behavior know that if they don't silence Bible believers that they might be pushed back into the closet. They're fighting for the esteem of our society and the freedom to live as they please and Christians get in the way. And that's what happened in Texas. The city government of Houston said, we're going to make a law so that a man who is transgendered can go into a women's restroom. And a whole bunch of people said, wait, that's not right. And they started a petition drive to refer that, you know, instead of the city council just making a decision, here's going to be a law. And, and a bunch of churches got behind it. And what happened when the homosexual mayor found out the churches were pushing back against the law she had led to introduce. She puts out a subpoena and says, hey, I'm going to find out if you guys are breaking the law. Give me your sermons. Okay? We should expect this. But we should expect it because sinners are fighting for the approval of their sin. When you tell somebody that certain behavior is wrong, whether it's homosexuality or, or, or you know, shooting heroin or whatever it is, they, they're going to push back. When you tell two people, when you, let's call it shacking up. Let's not call it living together. I, I don't like that. I do what I please. And so they push back, and they may push, push back with an intellectual argument. They may push back with an ad hominem argument, which means the Pharisees said about Jesus, he's casting out de- demons by the power of Satan. And they may say the same thing about you. And that's because Satan is fighting for control of humanity. Um, I won't take time, but note Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And when it says, we are not fighting against 
physical forces, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Make no mistake, folks, Satan, who, who, by the way, cares nothing about homosexual people, no more than he cares about any other person, but he's fighting for control. He's fighting to keep us away from God. He's fighting to win the battle that he started when he defected from being uh, one of God's angels. A few months ago, we had a, a, a military man who came and spoke to us, and in talking about various foreign fighters that he had encountered, he, he had various opinions about them, and he came onto one certain ethnic group or national group, and he said, now I respect those guys. And he respected them because they were savvy and strong and courageous fighters, and so he took them seriously as you should the devil. And he is going to work through our society to fight for control. There's a third reason that's really important here, too. Sinners cannot grasp any other possible reality. I understand that the, I'll generalize here, that the majority of folks who live in a homosexual lifestyle say, I've always been this way. I've known since I could remember, and so on. They cannot, and you come along and say that is a choice that has been made. It's the environment you've lived in, and it's wrong, and God wants you to change it. And they're just going, you're talking about the core of my being here. And they can't imagine any other existence. And you just told them that their whole life is wrong and has to be changed. The Apostle Paul talked about the struggle of sin when he said for sin taking occasion by the commandment it deceived me and by it it killed me for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I cannot find for the good that I do I do not do but the evil I want that's what I practice the apostle Paul said I struggle with sin I want to do better but I can't do it I'm, I'm torn in this thing and those who don't know, the, don't know the Lord are torn even further. When someone is overcome in sin, they cannot see any other way of life. I'm going to stop because I want you to remember the next batch of stuff I'm going to say. And I know if I go till the end, you'll be thinking about your perseverance maybe more than God's truth. And so next week, I'm going to pick this up. And I don't do that very often, but this is really important. It's really important that you get a hold of this stuff. And if you want any of the quotes that I've given or any of the resources I've given, I would be glad to give them to you. But let me just, let me just close with this as I will close with next week. And the most important point I haven't gotten to yet, and that is our attitude toward those who are caught in a lifestyle. And we have got to love them to Jesus. And we've got to pray them to Jesus. And that's what I want you to take away today. I want you to be built up in your faith and to know that God's word is true. You know, let God be true and every man a liar. God is true. And yet there's a great struggle going on and we've got to be part of that. Since Christ left the earth, there has been a constant push by Satan through the world against the body of Christ. And he will push with an argument and, and godly men and women will rise up and push back. And he will push with something new and godly men and women will rise up and push back. And it goes on and on. And this is the battle we're in. And it is up to us to push back in a godly way. 
in a godly way. And, and the bulk of that I will share with you next week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for the clarity of your truth. And Father, I want to pray first and foremost for anybody here who has struggled with homosexual desires, with homosexual identity, with homosexual temptation. I want to pray for your peace and your joy and your liberation in their life. And Father, that's what I want our church to be. I want our church to be a place where, where we don't hate anyone, including those who might have a lifestyle that we really, really struggle with. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to love all people and to be your servants to all people. I pray that you will win those who you have chosen to win through us. I pray for the parking lot party Thursday night that you would plant, or Friday night, that you would plant some seeds, that you would help some people to get started on the path to you. Father, may your truth ring in our ears. May it guide our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.